This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. The 57 members of Armio, the Association for Human Resources Management in International Organizations, range from the UN, UNICEF, and OECD to the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and the International Labor Organization. Armio's goal is to improve the professionalism of those who work in human resources management in international not-for-profit organizations. Mary Jane Peters, Executive Director, and Roger Eggleston, President Emeritus, were at Wharton recently for the group's 7th Annual Conference. They talked with knowledge at Wharton about their successes, such as the introduction of paternity leave, a policy regarding sexual harassment, competency-based assessment, and flexible work practices, as well as their major challenges, starting with the lack of qualified young people around the world to carry out the mission of Armio's member organizations. Mary Jane and Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. It's our pleasure to be here. To start with, could we perhaps talk about Armio? Uh, what exactly is Armio, and how do you work with international organizations? I think that I'll have to turn it over to Roger well. as the President Emeritus. Michael, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about about the history of Armio. Um, it was in 1996 when Mary Jane and I were running a conference of human resources specialists in essentially, largely, the United Nations group of organisations. And we said, you know, after we'd had this retreat and, and a, a series of interactions with all these people, said, this, this, this is the time when we should create some sort of learning institute or something uh, of that sort, where people who are working in human resources management, in international not-for-profit organisations, could come together because they have some unique elements in their jobs which are not common outside the international organisation arena. Just to take one, we are not subject to national legislation, for example. Uh, so we we don't are not impacted uh, by uh, matters that take case that take part in any one country. So we said there are enough reasons we think to have a, an institute. Then we called it an association. We 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 dropped the name uh, institute. And after four years or so, we set up Armio uh, in the year two thousand, um, and it really took off very well indeed. We have 57 member organisations now, organisations that are members of Armio, and we have over 200 individual members because we have both individual members and organisational members. Uh, and we have an annual conference, and that's why we're here very happily at the Wharton School. Uh, we have an annual conference in September each year, and this is the seventh annual conference. Uh, and we have lots of developmental activities. The goal of the association, I suppose, in a nutshell, is to improve the professionalism of those who work in human resources management in international not-for-profit organisations. Can you give us uh, some examples of the 57 uh, member organisations? Well, you have all of the United Nations family there. So the UN, UNICEF, UNDP, UNFPA, the World Health Organization, the International Labor Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the whole UN family. That's about 29 entities. Then in addition to that, you have 
I would say, all of the other world's leading international not-for-profit organizations. For example, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which has its headquarters in Paris, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, NATO is even there. Um, we have the Aga Khan Development Network, the Gavi Alliance, which uh, carries out immunization programs throughout the world, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank. I Got think it. that's All the pretty. Big names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if there is a lacuna, it's it's the NGOs that what we would call the non-governmental sector. But there are a few, uh, and we're hoping to get more. We have at this conference, we have the League of Red Cross and Red Crescent societies and so on. But but we need a few more NGOs. That's great. Now uh, it it seems like quite a, an incredible group of organizations you work with, uh, in, in working with these groups, uh, what have you found to be the biggest leadership and HR challenges? that uh, international uh, organizations face? Well, it's difficult to generalize across all 57 organizations. I can certainly uh, address what I know best, given my past uh, career in terms of the United Nations family. Uh, from a historical perspective, many people who joined the organizations uh, will soon be retiring. In some organizations of their professional and staff, more than 50% will be leaving the organization in the next three to five years. Yet I know very few of them are doing any kind of serious succession planning. So this is a, a chance for all your MBA students, I would say, because there will be a, a tremendous need to find talent. But then on the other side of that, of course, is keeping our institutional memory, because for the missions of these organizations, that is vital. We cannot police the world. We do not police the world. We give knowledge to the world. And so with all of the people marching out of the door going to retire soon, uh, I think this is a big biggest challenge for the leadership of the organizations. And I suspect many of the other international organizations, that will be equally true, perhaps less so with some of the newer ones, such as the UN program on HIV AIDS or the Gavi Alliance. These are very young institutions, and so the average age of their workforces tend to be much lower. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that's facing these organizations very much is that they... I don't think they've really appreciated that there is going to be a war for talent among the knowledge uh, workers of the world. The UN family, speaking of the UN family, and probably most of the international organisations that we're talking about have had it easy, basically. They, were, they, were, they had good brands. They're really good brand image. People just applied to them for jobs. You know, it, was, it was not too difficult to, to find good people, all, uh, basically all around the world. But it will be much more difficult, and I'm not sure that their recruitment, um, the, the, in the area of recruitment, they've professionalized well enough to really know how to target and how to get the best people um, yet. I, th I think it's still very much, I won't say hit or miss, but they're very much just waiting for people to apply and, and, and come on board and putting adverts, as you will have seen all the time, in rather uh, world class journals, The Economist, but you get all sorts of strange applications as a re result. Too many and not the right type, you know. What should recruiters be looking for when they try to fill these jobs that are going to become vacant? 
Well, I, I think that I have to address one issue, which is even written in the Charter of the United Nations as well as the constitutions of most organizations, the need for universality from the very beginning, and it's what we would call geographic distribution. And I think that our organizations have handled diversity from a, a nationality perspective very well. However, for the future, this will become a far greater challenge because, as Roger said, while the brand was good for the first 60 years, uh, now the same diversity is needed by a lot of other organizations, bilateral development aid agencies, uh, the private sector. They want Indiagio or Colgate Palmolive as diverse a workplace as we do. So we were really all competing for the same talent as mon amongst the knowledge worker. All these people have higher level educational qualifications. In most cases, they would not take someone with less than a master's degree. Uh, some of our economists or lawyers will all have PhDs from leading world institutions. They will be required to be um, linguistically flexible. <laughs> they will have to be geographically mobile in most instances. And that is a coming challenge for all global employers, given the uh, importance, growing importance of dual careers. That has been a challenge for the organizations up to now, especially vis-a-vis -vis women. And I would say as far as gender balance, that's where the organizations have done less well than in terms of geography. But dual careers for the younger male will also be just as important. The world has changed. And we're going to have to think out of the box. Years ago, when I began my career in the World Health Organization, we did not employ spouses never mind partners, we called them wives, I think, in those days, believe it or not. But um, we didn't, you were not, a, the organisation was not allowed, I mean, it's, it, it, was, it, it just, it was forbidden to employ the spouse of an employee. That, of course, has all changed, that we, we wiped all those uh, silly, silly rules away. But we're, we're going to have to get with it as far as dual careers are concerned. And there's still a, a lot of hesitancy to know quite what to do. And I think one of the things we're just going to have to do is to team up with other people who have the same problem in the world. I mean, there are international corporations of all varieties, and they all are facing the same problem. And we have a, an enormous uh, international workforce, so we've really got the, an opportunity to, to team up with other uh, corporations and, and organizations which are doing similar things. What, what would be the attraction of your organizations to someone who could make probably more money in the private sector? Well, some of the research I've been looking at, there was some research recently produced by a group called the Future Work Forum. And I'm seeing, at least from the research, uh, some very surprising and lovely trends. Uh, and that is the younger generation. They want, they're interested in international careers, they're interested in being mobile, and they're interested in getting intrinsic worth from their job. They're interested in doing good for the world. Well, if there are ever any organizations where you can do good. And I, I'm happy to see, too, that MBA students are more and more interested. <clears throat> you know, in the past, sometimes they were just wanting to go out into the financial sector. I am being approached by more and more MBA students in terms of how to work for an, a UN-type humanitarian organization. 
These organizations are difficult to work for in some cases. I don't want to minimize this. If you work for the High Commission for Refugees or for UNICEF or the World Food Program, you have to expect to be constantly mobile, and you may never work in your home country. Uh, you may sometimes be in places where your family can't be there because they're so dangerous. But I think that there's a growing number of people in our world who recognize the importance for the world, for their own families, of the missions of these organizations and are very attracted to them. Do, do you find that within the international organizations with which you work, that there is a recognition of the seriousness of this war for talent, or are they in denial? They haven't. I don't think they've appreciated in in the, in the large majority of organisations, at least, yet that this war for talent is coming. It's very difficult to talk to people, for example, in organisations and say, you know, there is going to be a war for talent. And they say, no, 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 we've got 20,000 applications from Bangladesh or we've got 2,000 applications. I mean, every job, there are lots of people from India who will apply for a job. No disrespect, but, you know, it, it happens. It's, it's the reality. And, in fact, their biggest problem is sifting through those applications and so on. Um, but they really... That, that's what I was trying to point to, I think, because they, they haven't understood really what they're looking for. They're just receiving a lot of, a lot of applications. And so, no, I don't think they've yet got to grips uh, as much as they ought with the, with the, the need for understanding what the next workforce really will look like. It, you know, it was very easy in 1945 and 55 and 65, um, and there were bright, you know, bushy-tailed young things rushing to join the United Nations system and the, all the international organisations. But it, it, won't, it isn't like that now, and it won't, certainly won't be like that in the future. But also, it, as far as pay trends that we see happening in the world, um, they would admit in most cases, that in uh, Western industrialized countries, that it's gotten harder to recruit. Now, what we see in terms of pay trends in Asia in partic particular, but in all what are called the BRIC countries, pay is rising so fast that I know of a case of someone who worked for one of the international financial institutions and wanted to leave their headquarters in, in North America to return home to Brazil because pay was better in Brazil. And, and there is... There, there is a constraint to being a constant expatriate, to being away from your own professional, social, and family ties back home. So sometimes people then will go not back. be attracted or will go back, and we will not be able to retain that talent unless we address certain issues seriously. Well, uh, we've been talking in somewhat general terms, which is good, but can we switch? Can you give us specific examples of, without naming names, of good and bad leadership in international organizations? Certainly good leadership, and I suppose by implication bad leadership. Yes, I think for me good leadership is that that has real integrity, real impartiality, and can stand up under pressure to... Um, governmental uh, influences. Now, that's very difficult in an international political arena. But I'll give you one example, which I, I, I witnessed, well, even more than one, if you like. But um, I, I worked for somebody in the World Health Organization. It's called Leo Caprio. He's dead, and I, I don't think he'd mind at all if I, if I told you. Um, and I remember very well, this was that year when cholera broke out in Naples, um, we were in the 70s and he it, it's a famous it's a famous case and the Italian government denied 
that there was cholera, but it was there were press reports were beginning to appear, and we had information in WHO that there was cholera. And this, of course, is you know serious, not not least for tourists and tourism and the whole economic uh, spectrum. And Leo Caprio said one Friday afternoon, I remember very well, and he 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 talked to us all, a group of us, and he said, I am going to declare that there is cholera in Italy on Monday morning or on Sunday night if the Italian government doesn't do that, and I have told them so. Irrespective of the votes he would lose, the vote he would lose in his election as the chief, the boss man, um, by doing so with the Italian government, he would not be a popular person in Italy. Uh, and of course, what happened was that the Italian government declared that they had cholera in Naples over the weekend. That was, you know, that, that I think is a good leader. There are very, there are fewer and fewer of those in my experience these days. There's more and more who are seeking the glamour, the glory, the, the, the hubris uh, I think we've got a hubris syndrome in leadership in, in government and we're seeing it in international government, if you like. I think, you know, uh, the leaders of the countries that are best known to some of us, mine and Mary Jane's, uh, are, are, I'm afraid they're full of hubris. And, and I, I think this is, is a serious problem for the future of the world and it's certainly a serious problem for the organisations. You don't feel that there is that that commitment to the cause of the organization there is a commitment to me i and how good and clever i am and how I, my story can be spun but by I, spin doctors <laughs> I, I think that a clarification perhaps would be useful because i know my own mother often didn't understand this because she would often say well are you representing our government in that organization i said no mother i'm an international civil servant and that is at the heart of these organizations. We are there to serve the world community. Yet we live in a political community around these organizations. There's always bound to be tension. You see it being played out every day in the UN General Assembly or in the UN Security Council. But this exists in all of these organizations. And the only moral authority these organizations can have vis-a-vis -vis the world's citizens is to the extent that the staff members are politically neutral and impartial and independent, not taking instructions from any member country. That is written into the, the constitutions of the organizations, that the staff shall be impartial and, and have integrity and so on. And it was that, of course, that brought down the League of Nations. If you, you, know, if you, if you look at, at history, why the League of Nations did not succeed, it was because... Um, the staff in in that civil service were brought in from their mem the member states they and they represented the member states and that failed as a model uh, and our model is, has been working and I pray will continue to work and we must be very careful to make sure that we, we in, enshrine you know uh, this 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 impartiality and integrity into the staff that come in in, in the in the near future. Right. Roger, you mentioned integrity as, as a key component of leadership, and that's, of course, absolutely true, and it's universally true. But uh, based on what you just described as the nature of these organizations, what do you think are the qualities that a leader needs to succeed in these kinds of organizations? And how would they compare, for example, to the kind of qualities you might need to succeed in business or in a company? That's a tough question, Michael. But I, I think um, 
I don't think there's any difference. I don't think leadership is divisible by, by uh, a functional area. I'm sure the, the, the dean of a, an academic institution or the president of an academic institution and the, the CEO of, of a major corporation and the secretary general or director general of an international organization, I'm sure the qualities that are required, the, the area will be different, but the qualities will be very much the same. It, it's something to do with truth unto yourself, I'm sure, at heart, but it's Mary Jane will have a better expression. Well, no, I, I think that... I, I agree with Roger, but to compare the two, and we can look at the stories of Enron, for example, um, and what was the economic and social impact when the failure of that company, I think largely now recognized due to uh, uh, issues of the values of the leadership. I would say our leaders in these international organizations, the repercussions for the world at large are far greater. It's humanity that's at stake when we fail to do something about what's happening in Darfur quickly. Uh, if we cannot deal with the problem and convince governments to deal with the problem as far as HIV, AIDS, um, refugee issues, uh, where leadership fails there, we fail the world community at large. Can you make any generalizations about either this, this would be a gross generalization, either continents or developed versus developing countries or specific countries versus others that are more receptive to these messages, to your efforts, et cetera? No. I think it's general across all regions of the world. Um, and I think that when I look at the staff in all these organizations, uh, you will find uh, from no matter what country or what region of the world uh, the same differences you would find um, anywhere. Uh, there will be some people who have more of a professional calling, vocation, idealism than others, uh, but that would be true in any society. And I think if you want a country that's doing most about integrity in its national civil service, it's probably South Africa. You know, m m probably much more than where you would have thought one would be talking about Canada or, or somewhere. But I think, of course, one has. Uh, the, 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 um, but I, at the moment, for me, South Africa would be the example of, of where an awful lot was going on to bring integrity into the national civil service. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, we, we talked about the, the, the challenge that international organizations face and the fact that they're not always fully aware of the seriousness of the problems. What possible solutions would you suggest uh, might address these issues? That's another hard question. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's difficult to generalize across 57 international not-for-profit organizations. Um, but I, I think there's one area, um, <clears throat> and it, has, it goes back to the tension that I spoke about a moment ago, and that is, uh, and when I, I speak to people, I think it's really important that citizens at large not leave these organizations solely in the hands of their governments, uh, because... The, the issue of the impartiality of the institution, I think, is the most serious. And I have witnessed in my over three decades working for UN family organizations the pressures that come sometimes from certain member states. And even when you're trying to put in competency-based assessment, uh, a new code of conduct for the international civil service, uh, things that would be oftentimes normal in a national context. Sometimes these 
tend to be resisted by certain governments. And for them to not be suspicious of these things uh, and see them as normal good business practice, I think from a management perspective I have seen that to be a tremendous challenge, leaving aside all the political issues of uh, the programmatic areas of some of the organizations to send peacekeepers into Darfur or not to send them. Those are other issues, but the management side, I see those issues needing to be addressed urgently. Governance is a very is a very complex and interesting subject, which one really could talk about for a very long time. The governance of the United Nations and then differing um, in specialist areas to to other organizations is uh, is made up i mean the people who are running those organizations in terms of the member state representation come from usually foreign ministries or if not foreign ministries some ministry they are not elected officials they are civil servants of one form or another and i don't know that they do represent we the people always and i have said i've got myself in a lot of hot water with a number of delegates in the in the general assembly of the united nations nations saying i'm not sure you really represent the people of wherever it is you're coming from which is not a thing you should say but but you know um and that makes it very difficult and a number of the older organizations, those that were born after the, 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 the Second World War, uh, have very, had built into their constitutions a very strong international secretariat. If you look at the organigram of the UN, you will see there are five pillars. There is the General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, something called the Trusteeship Council, and the fifth pillar says Secretariat. Well, I say that's probably fairly equal then in power. Well, the member states do not like that. Uh, they, they say, we are in charge of the organization. You will do what we say. And uh, we've, we've had a, a, a number of discussions on that subject about that role. And certainly in the newer organizations, those that have been set up in the last 10 years or so, you will see a very different organigram where the member states sort of say, you, Secretariat, sharpen the pencils and write the reports and we'll tell you what to do. And that's a, a different relationship, and it, it's, it's happened. But I think it's interesting and important to note, compared to a big private sector company, imagine 180 people on your board from 180 different countries. <laughs> With 180 <laughs> different What a nightmare. Views. Yes, right. <laughs> well, given the fact that the two of you, between yourselves, have several decades of experience in this area, what would you count as your biggest successes? I was thinking of that earlier, actually, when you, when you were speaking. We, we, because there is quite a lot of cynicism, not say healthy, maybe healthy cynicism in these organisations, and it is it is sometimes difficult to keep your enthusiasm going. Um, but but we were fortunate. Well, I think we were fortunate in, in always working in areas where we felt we were really trying to do good things, uh, and 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 we we were we were not. Um, subject to a lot of pressure from uh, hierarchy about these political things and so on, and we could really, in in small and larger areas, introduce some some changes, and and that was that was really rewarding. Changes like 
paternity leave, uh, um, leave up for, for, you know, I mean, from the supply, some of the small things to some of the much bigger things. And then, of course, starting Armio meant that we exposed people uh, who we, we were working with to a, a much greater array of thought about what was human resources management now in the year 2000 and, and after, and, and what it really meant to be worried, concerned for no more personnel, clerical things, but the management of human resources in organisations. But success stories, we've had one or two. Oh, yeah. But I, I think, and it, I was recalling addressing a group of um, MBA students at a business school in Europe recently and drawing the comparison based on my experience of working in these organisations versus the private sector. I think for a younger person, there's a lot more scope to develop yourself and your job we have impossible mandates. Think about peace and social justice, for example. But very, very limited budgets. So in the private sector, this is a generalization, jobs tend to be much more defined and closed. Whereas I think for a bright young person who has good thinking, learns quickly the context in which they're working, I think there's tremendous scope for them to enlarge their work. And I have only advised them, you get there, one, by understanding the context, and then two, being very patient, and three, getting there by stealth. Roger and I together in the HR area uh, used a lot of patience and stealth at a one time when people wouldn't even talk in these organizations about sexual harassment, for example, we managed to get through back in the early 90s. And considering in a multicultural setting, this is not easy, a policy on sexual harassment in the workplace, we managed to introduce uh, paternity leave, which is one full month for fathers. Um, we managed to introduce competency-based assessment. We managed to do uh, a whole range of uh, policies signed off on by the executive heads, including the Secretary General, for flexible workplace practices. Uh, so I think in many respects we've, we've had some success stories. We've had failures too, but I never Whoa. saw them as failures. <laughs> I said, the time is just not right. <laughs> they would say, Mary Jane, go back to your sandbox. That was the... <laughs> Well, that, that's a great note to end on. Uh, Mary Jane and Roger, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's thank our pleasure. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Mm-hmm.